Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Who took the bomb? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Beat writer William S. Burroughs had a profound impact on rock music. From Paul McCartney to Patti Smith, we examine the connections between Burroughs and rock and roll. It's summer, spirit of early mists and showers, Ixta, goddess of ropes and snares. Plus, we review new records from Leonard Cohen and Sudan Archive. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to dig deep into the musical legacy of author William S. Burroughs. But first, we have some new music to review. The night of Santiago, and I was passing through. So I took her to the river, as any man would do. Her thighs, they slipped away from me like schools of startled fish. Though I've forgotten half my life, I still remember this. That is The Night of Santiago from the new Leonard Cohen record, Thanks for the Dance. Yes, uh, you heard that right, the new Leonard Cohen album. Cohen died in 2016 at the age of 82. uh, And during the sessions for what was his final record, uh, When He Was Alive, You Want It Darker, he was also working on the songs uh, that became this album. Uh, Cohen, a published poet, one of the greatest songwriters of the last half century. His songs have been covered by numerous artists. We're talking Nina Simone, R.E.M., Jeff Buckley, John Cale, Lana Del Rey, Tori Amos, Roberta Flack. The list goes on. One of the most revered songwriters of our time. 14 studio albums since 1967. Not a huge output for uh, such a major artist. He's taken some lengthy hiatuses in the middle of that long career. Classic songs like Famous Blue Raincoat, Suzanne, Bird on the Wire, Hallelujah. It only seems like it's been interpreted by several million people. Uh, (laughs) Only a slight exaggeration, though. Uh, And over those six decades, he has become uh, a a revered figure in modern music called the Master of Erotic Despair. Uh, He worked on the final records of his career with his son, Adam, as the co-producer. This is the final work that he produced, apparently, Uh, called Thanks for the Dance. Here is a track from it. It is called Happens to the Heart from Leonard Cohen on Sound Opinions. There's a mist of summer kisses where I tried to double park. The rivalry was vicious. The women were in charge. It was nothing, it was business. But it left an ugly mark. I've come here to revisit. What happens to the heart? That is Happens to the Heart by Leonard Cohen from the album Thanks for the Dance. Uh, Greg, that line uh, absolutely kills me Mm. about uh, I never called it art. 
I just <laughs> did my work, and I uh, met Christ and read Marx. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's ever been a more Leonard Cohen line. I also love that song that we bumped in with, The Night of Santiago. It tells of an illicit romance down by the river. I've forgotten half my life, but I still remember this, Cohen says. Uh, and it turns out that his paramour has lied to him. She's married with kids. She neglected to mention that. And he says, well... You were born to judge, uh, but forgive me, I wasn't. Again, what a life force at 82 years old in the studio with some impressive guests, I have to say. Daniel Lanois stops by to add piano. You kick off your sandals and shake out your hair. It's torn where you're dancing. It's torn everywhere. He's got uh, vocalists ranging from Damien Rice to Feist adding backing vocals. You and I, when we've talked about Cohen, and we've done it several times in the last couple of years because of this kind of uh, grand finale last act in his career, have made the point that often on record, uh, he could be disappointing. Mm. It could be way overproduced, cheesy 80s synths dominating the work for a long time. This is a wonderfully minimalist record. Mm. You know, guitar, piano, vocals, Leonard. What else do you need? I, I think it's brilliant. And in a lot of ways, I, I like it uh, even better than his official last album. Well, I wish I could be as complimentary as you are of Cohen's last record. And I'm holding it against a pretty high standard because I think the last three albums that he worked on, which is really remarkable, you talk about a guy in his 70s and early 80s making albums as good as old ideas, popular problems, and then you want it darker in 2012 through 2016. Uh, that's a pretty high standard. I feel as if this record is a notch below those. Really? Um, I think I think it's a okay to good record. I think the the track that we played at the top uh, happens to the heart is one of the best tracks he's done in recent years. I think the rest of the work, some of it to me, the Night of Santiago is a bit of a purple prose romance no, novel. No, get out of here. Thing. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I, I just think that well, you were born sort to of judge, but by I numbers. wasn't. Yeah, puppets. Puppet, you know the yeah, political metaphors. I'm not. Go I'm not. I don't think it's a very strong song. Puppet German. Puppet Jew, Puppet President's Command, Puppet Troops to Burn the Land. See, look, how long did it take him to write Hallelujah, his best-known song? Uh, about Two, ten, 10 years at ten, least. 10 years, yeah. right? Famously and he's still like, unfinished, and according he's still to him. Considered it un- I think Cohen could be overcooked, right? Mm. Too much time in the kitchen making the stew. This has a loose, spontaneous feel that I really value. This is a punk rock. Uh, it's an interesting take. I, I, I'm of the opposite view. I think he ran out of time. I think he would have made this a better record if he had lived to finish it out. Uh, he left basically a, an unfinished record for his son to finish. Not that his son did a bad job. I just think if Cohen had been able to spend more time on this record, this record would have risen to the level of the previous three. That is a little bit of the song Glorious from the first full album by Sudan Archives, Athena. Sudan Archives, Greg, is a young woman named Brittany Parks 
who uh, is a self-taught violinist, singer, songwriter, producer, musical family. Her stepdad worked with L.A. Reid and Babyface at LaFace Records, uh, initially tried to launch a career for his stepdaughter as a teen pop act. Mm. That did not last long. Britney had other ideas. They involved sitting in her bedroom with uh, do-it-yourself recording equipment and crafting a really sophisticated R&B sound based on her songs, her voice, and that violin. I, I love that violin. I'm not usually a violin fan. Key to her first two EPs uh, that introduced her to the world, and now comes this full-length album. She's working with a trio of great producers, uh, Greg, including folks who've worked with King Cruel, Danny Brown, The XX, but it's really her record. Let's play a song, and we'll get deep into our opinions about it. This is Did You Know by Sudan Archives from the album Athena on Sound Opinions. Did you know from the new Sudan Archives record, Athena, the debut album from Sudan Archives? I, I remember you and I both saw this woman at uh, South by Southwest at probably, what, a couple of years ago? Yeah, maybe three years ago. Mesmerizing performer. She did a solo set with basically a, a beatbox and, and her violin. And mm-hmm. the dancing, the vocals, the, the blend of hip-hop and these exotic sort of... Um, sounds from uh, derived from a, a lot of African music because apparently she was inspired by Sudanese violin playing uh, yeah. as, as an influence on her Well, I read an interview sound. with her. She didn't like the name Brittany, yeah. you know, and, and said to her mom, I, I want a new name. And her mom said, how about Sudan? And that led her to investigate the culture, totally the music, the whole... Serendipitous kind of, you know, circumstance. Okay, I'm going to study this music. And it influenced her style of music. Now, you'd referenced her early forays into sort of more of a traditional sound. You hear a little bit of that in the R&B style vocals of a song like Limitless, you know, mm-hmm. which were very hooky. You could say, oh, that could be a, a commercial radio song. Says she got a new friend. Says she got a new day. Says she living in the hills. She don't worry about a thing. Said he give a dollar bill. But what I love on this record is the, is the more experimental feel that she brings to it. You know, that track Glorious that mm-hmm. we played at the top uh, with the violin very prominent. You know, it's plucked, it's struck, yeah. and it's bowed. You know, and then she's using this piece of wood as an instrument, a sound machine, and she's creating all this wonderful, not only sort of a hip-hop loop on it, but also creating the melody line over the top. Then she's got those chanted vocals, and the guest verse from uh, that rapper, D8, 
talk about a hybrid of sounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about several centuries of, of African music here that is sort of being compressed. Well, not just into African. This three and four it, minute you know, song. She, uh, she was fascinated when she learned to play the violin with mm-hmm. Irish jigs. So every once in a while, you get a burst of Celtic fiddle music. Yeah. And, and I love, like, you know, the record is, it, it is meant to be listened to as a whole. You know, those little interstitial tracks that are in there, like stuck 68 mm-hmm. seconds. That atmospheric violin, the way that's sort of have that trip hop groove in it. The watery psychedelic feel of a track like Coming Up. I love the way she's mixing the pop with the experimental feel, the sort of exoticism with the more accessible stuff. You know, she's a one-of-a-kind artist. This is a great oh, start to her career. And, and it's a stunning debut uh, to be to be this confident uh, right out of the gate on a first full album. I think it puts her up there with others right now who are redefining the boundaries of R&B. I'm thinking FKA Twigs. I'm thinking Solange. I'm thinking Frank Ocean. Mm-hmm. It is that good. Uh, you know, and it is a record about daring to be yourself. You know, as a young woman uh, named Brittany playing violin, not the coolest instrument, I've heard her say this is a record about uh, a line from the song Confessions. I washed away my fears and trusted my own ears. It's about daring to be whoever you want to be and not living up to anybody else's definition. It, it promises great things from her in the future couple of rave reviews on uh, Sudan Archives. Do you have an opinion on Sudan Archives or Leonard Cohen, whose record we were split on a little earlier? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. After a break, we're going to talk with author Casey Ray about William S. Burroughs and the cult of rock and roll. That's coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And this week, we are digging into how beat writer William S. Burroughs intersects with the music world. He was born in St. Louis in 1914, graduated from Harvard, met aspiring uh, fellow writers Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg in New York, accidentally shot and killed his wife, Joan Vollmer, in Mexico. Uh, and that was all before he'd even published his first book, Greg. He eventually did get published, Jim. Uh, his first novel, Junkie, was based on his own experience with uh, opiate addiction. Uh, quite lurid, quite vivid, quite spectacular in my, its own my, way. My favorite Burroughs book. His third novel, Naked Lunch, came out in 1959 and was put on trial for obscenity. Uh, but eventually Burroughs won, and along with Ginsburg and Kerouac, became one of the most recognizable of the Beat Generation writers. I mean, the Beats were, to put it succinctly, nonconformist vagabonds on a spiritual quest that rejected, uh, you know, a lot of tr- traditional notions of things like capitalism, like you aren't what you own, you know. It, right. it was not about materialism or acquisition. It was about exploring both, you know, psychically, psychologically, sexually, geographically. These guys were on a quest for a new world. All in the era of madmen. Yes, indeed. But while most of the beats moved to San Francisco and clearly inspired much of the music to come out of that scene in the late 60s, Burroughs was traveling the world. I mean, he connected with musicians everywhere he went. 
and uh, exerted a great deal of influence on how they approached their own art projects. David Allen of the Soft Machine, for example, in Paris, or Mick Jagger and McCartney in London, Patti Smith and Deborah Harry in New York City. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Burroughs' effect on the music world. Even when he was near the end of his life, living in retirement in Lawrence, Kansas, Michael Stipe and Kurt Cobain were among those who made pilgrimages just to meet him. The deep connection between Burroughs and music is the topic of a new book by music journalist Casey Ray, William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll. When we spoke with Casey, Greg started by asking why he thought Burroughs' influence on music was deeper than his peers, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. I think superficially, it is the outlaw persona. I mean, this is a person with a checkered personal history. And let's face it, William S. Burroughs shot his wife in the head in a drunken game of William Tell. And that is just a reprehensible act and one that he didn't forgive himself for. I don't forgive him for that in the book. But I also think that, you know, he was boldly visionary and uh, incredibly funny too. Mm. He's got to be right up there with America's top satirists. Uh, You know, I think of Mark Twain or Jonathan Swift. I mean, he just had a scathing and insightful ability to just take apart any sacred cow. All the skill is going out of surgery. All the know-how and make do. Did I ever tell you about the time I performed an appendectomy with a rusty sardine can? And once I was caught short without instrument one and removed an uterine tumor with my teeth. Ah, that was in the upper Fendi, and besides, the wench is dead. I think the anti-establishment attitude really was appealing to a certain type of musician. But he also was kind of a surrealist uh, or a post-surrealist. He had a magical worldview, and I think that resonated with other artists, particularly uh, folks like David Bowie or Genesis P. Orridge from Throbbing Gristle. This influence becomes seeded with many other artists who uh, came up after. You know, for example, it would be hard to find artists who haven't been influenced by, say, Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, or David Bowie, to say nothing of Paul McCartney. And so I think the influence becomes even more subliminal. But even to this day, you'll find a a certain type of artist who is drawn to the anti-establishment aspects of Burroughs or just his uh, outlaw persona. couple of times in the book, and it is a fascinating read, and it Mm -hmm. is great musicological, cultural, sociological history. A couple of times in the book, though, you skirt up to the edge of where artists who fell down that trap killed themselves with heroin, Mm -hmm. like Kurt Cobain, Mm -hmm. right? Were they encouraged, to some degree, by Burroughs having romanticized it? Now, I I love Junkie. You know, Junkie's a, a gritty, horrifying tale of the pain of being addicted to heroin, but also like he was selling this thing. Well, you know, on a certain level, it does become part of his brand. But at the same time, I do believe that Burroughs didn't set out to make heroin look like an attractive proposition for others. As a matter of fact, anybody who reads Junkie or even uh, Naked Lunch will come away with an understanding that addiction is very, very powerful and that it brings out the worst in people. And, you know, look, for somebody like Kurt Cobain, 
it's very possible that William S. Burroughs made heroin look cool enough to try, but at the same time, it was the Pacific Northwest in the mid to late 80s, and I think that heroin was in no short supply among the kids on a go-nowhere track like yeah. Cobain was until he discovered music. So, uh, you know, as Cobain himself said, you know, there was still Keith Richards and Iggy Pop. You know? mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's probably plenty of paths to dependency. You know, if you're thinking about the influence of Burroughs as as sort of a literary device that has to do with the CD underground, I mean, I think that, you know, Lou Reed would be somebody who I name as a Burroughs acolyte who took from Burroughs maybe not just the glamorization of the underground and drug use, but also just the way that it's described, a very terse, matter-of-fact kind of uh, street view of yeah. the reality yeah. of drug addiction. Explicit, yeah, mm-hmm. but not without empathy. Right, not without empathy. And, uh, you know, it paints a very real uh, and, and potentially problematic picture of that lifestyle. Little Joe never once gave it away Everybody had to pay and pay A hustle here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, Joe, take a walk on the wild side. I think it's uh, obviously up to the reader to decide, but one of the interesting things about Burroughs to me is that Without, for example, the obscenity trial around Naked Lunch, I don't know if we'd even have any of these rock albums that are up for discussion. It's true. The legal history of fighting for something that was considered transgressive and and smutty being art and needing to be said. You know, I I would also say Henry Miller had something to do with that. Oh, for sure. A lot of the titans of arts and culture in the 20th century were deeply transgressive. Jim, I think you have a lot of background in, in looking at the ugly side of certain artists. And, you know, I'm not making excuses for Burroughs here, but on the other side, he also was, I think, seen as a very gracious person, a very welcoming Mm -hmm. person, if you were lucky enough, I suppose, to be part of his inner circle. A 50s gentleman. A 50s gentleman. So, you know, I'm not shying away from any of the more problematic aspects of his life and worldview, but at the same time, trying to present a picture of Burroughs that maybe is a a little bit deeper than the superficial outlaw icon. It -hmm. it absolutely is. Let me ask you about one other thing that I wanted more of, though. Mm -hmm. My favorite of the beats is Kerouac. Mm. Burroughs took me a long time. Aside from Junkie, I found it hard reading. Here was my key, though. When he began making records with people like Bill Laswell of Material and and others, Burroughs is musical himself. That's right. The ancient Egyptians postulated seven souls. Top soul, and the first to leave at the moment of death is Ren, the secret name. You talk about how he didn't understand music necessarily, but you know, to hear Burroughs read, the priest, they called him. You don't get Burroughs until you got that voice in your <laughs> yeah. head. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to uh, come into my initial understanding of Burroughs at a time when a lot of his spoken word efforts were being repressed and made available. Also, you know, Gus Van Sant's film, Drugstore mm-hmm. Cowboy mm-hmm. and stuff. 
The idea that anyone can use drugs and escape a horrible fate is anathema to these idiots. I predict in the near future, right-wingers will use drug hysteria as a pretext to set up an international police apparatus. I'd see him in the ministry video for Just One Fix. So, uh, <laughs> But you're absolutely right. The slow, drawl, cadence yeah. of William S. Burroughs, it's got a hypnotic quality in and of itself. And I think that's why he, you know, William S. Burroughs, the MC, is a thing. Yeah, like, he right. shows up on hip-hop records. People often ask me if I have any words of advice for young people. Words of advice for young people. Well, here are a few simple admonitions for young and old. We have to talk about Cut Up. If people know the name, that's probably the first place they go, other than yeah. Heroin Junkie, maybe, or the guy who killed his wife. Cut Up writing is the innovation that he is perhaps most known for from a technical standpoint. Explain to our uh, listeners who don't know what that is, what Cut Up is. Essentially, it's the idea of uh, inserting randomness into uh, creative expression. This is the way I do cut-ups. I don't know if it's like the way Brian Geisen does his or, or Burroughs does his. I don't know. And there was a specific formula employed by Burroughs. His friend, or frenemy, Brian Geisen, stumbled across this technique at uh, some point in the 50s. He had been preparing canvases, and he accidentally sliced through a canvas, and underneath was some newsprint. And it, it was uh, cut into four neat quadrants, which he then rearranged. And lo and behold, it revealed an interesting and randomized kind of text that he thought, uh, you know, maybe we'll try this again. And, you know, it wasn't just a get out of jail free card in terms of jump starting the creative process. I tried doing it with diaries and things, and I was finding out amazing things about me and what I'd done and where I was going. And a lot of the things that I'd done, it, it seemed that it would predict things about the future or tell me a lot about the past. They actually looked at it as a type of divination device. Mm. Um, there was a sort of occult outlook around cut-ups. Burroughs said, cut into the present and the future leaks out. Right. I suppose it's a very Western tarot. I don't know. Geisen said, we perform cut-ups until the machine arrives. And I started thinking about that. What is the machine? Oh, it's the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, we are living in a universe of recombinant media mm -hmm. where, you know, just about everything, every audio, visual artifact can be sliced and diced and repurposed. And most importantly, I think in terms of Burroughs' worldview, weaponized. Mm -hmm. He uh, talked about how in the future there would be the viral communication of small snippets of sound, text, and image reassembled. Uh, mm -hmm. for maximum psychic impact. And, you know, I think about that and I think about meme culture and 8chan and the rest, and it makes me want to take a shower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, this influence is not always good. Mm -hmm. You right. know, there has been as much more, I would say, far more pure crap lyrics. You know, I cut and pasted. <laughs> I did the cut-up method, right? Yeah. As there is brilliance a la Cobain. Well, it's in the eye of the beholder. I will say this for the technique. Uh, David Bowie continued to use it throughout his career. What I've used it for more than anything else is igniting anything that might be in my imagination. I mean, it can often come up with very interesting uh, attitudes to
He was another one of the uh, Burroughs lifers. And reportedly, right up through Black Star, he was using uh, cut-ups yeah, uh, yeah. as a compositional device. In the 90s, he actually worked with a software developer to create one of the first apps, I guess you would call it, uh, to perform cut-ups automatically, algorithmically, I guess. It's not a selling point for me. Let me ask you another skeptical question. Mm. This occult nonsense. <laughs> I mean, nonsense. come on, Greg, and I know you. <laughs> but how well do you know me? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. Have, have I just uh, doomed myself to the goat's head in my bed or what? Uh, well, look, I, I think that for some folks like Burroughs, the mindset is this. The occult is nothing more than the imposition of one's will on external reality. And art or, you know, aesthet- making aesthetic choices in creative expression is very much the same. He saw them as part and parcel of the same thing. He he was a true believer. I mean, for example, he supposedly cursed a coffee shop in London that gave him bad service and <laughs> they went out of business. And he did that yeah. using, you know, occult yeah. style cut-ups. And there was the organ therapy box. Yeah. <laughs> he loved fringe science. He loved uh, all of that stuff. You know, he would have uh, still fit in very well today, given our, our contemporary cultural situation, conspiracies and the rest. But I tend to look at this as more practical. You can call it a cult. But really what you're looking for are, you know, harnessing the power of serendipity to take you someplace creatively or even as an appreciator of creativity to transport you someplace, to change your reality. For example, when Burroughs sits down with Jimmy Page, that's by and large what they're talking about. They're talking about the power of music to transport people to other states. And from that standpoint, it doesn't sound so crazy to me. Yeah, I think it was all a form of rebellion against the the man. I mean, I think the whole idea of control was a, such a huge part of his mindset in terms of what he saw as the most corrupting influence in society over human beings. Question, if control's control is absolute, why does control need to control? Answer, control needs time. Question, is control controlled by its need to control? Answer, yes. Governments, religions, corporations, they were all part of this conspiracy to keep human beings, uh, you know, slaves, essentially. Sure, and he also had a vested interest in changing his own past, right? He obviously harbored tremendous... um, remorse for, you know, whether it was an accident or not, the act that ended up killing his wife. And by all accounts, even though they had a toxic codependent relationship, they were quite close. She was his champion and as human beings. They had a real relationship, even though he was a homosexual and women would not have been his uh, his first choice in sexual partners. They had a legitimate relationship. And I can't imagine the self-inflicted, of course, psychic trauma. So for him, you know, cut-ups were also a way of like if reality is all pre-recorded, which is also part of the Barosian uh, belief system, yeah. then it can be edited. And so I think that he was looking at some of these methods as being a way for him to change his own past. But of course, you're right, Greg, the overarching concern was to get to the actual kind of meat of this, which is what are we being limited, stifled, uh, and what is being suppressed in Mm -hmm. terms of humanity's potential? And how do we fight back against that? And I think that a lot of the artists in, in my book also had a similar outlook. They may have approached their contemplation of it from different angles, but it is certainly something they share in common with Burroughs. Yeah, I think that's the influence right there. I think you nailed it on the head, was this whole idea of the attitude. You know, it it was this sort of rebellion sort of incarnate in art 
and Burroughs represented that. And I think that's why all these different artists sort of gravitated toward his work, because they saw some of that in their own work, or at least hoped to. And also what you're describing, I mean, that's hip-hop. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, yep. that, that's what it is. I think a lot of what we take for granted in the Pro Tools universe of um, audio production is essentially what Burroughs was doing in the basement flat that Paul McCartney set him up with. Uh, you know, he wa- he saw Paul write Eleanor Rigby. He w- he might have been the first human being who, he- besides mm. Paul, who heard Eleanor Rigby. But the real reason he was there was because uh, McCartney was interested in Burroughs's audio experiments. Good. Yes. Hello. Yes. Hello. How does it feel yes. now? Hello. Yes, hello. Thank you. Yes, hello. Yes, hello. Good. Yes, hello. Yes, hello. Yes. He had a little R&D laboratory that Paul would also use to demo Beatles recordings. But yeah, cut-ups and the impact on actual audio production can be traced uh, that far back. And it certainly, you know, nowadays, I don't think when you're sitting down uh, mixing up uh, samples that you're thinking about Burroughs, but it's hard to imagine that universe existing without that influence. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion with Casey Ray and track William S. Burroughs' movement through the music world. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and we're talking with author Casey Ray about how literary giant William S. Burroughs interacted with generations of musicians. Casey, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's three key periods. When he's living in London in the psychedelic 60s, uh, when he comes to New York and is in the bunker on the Lower East Side, very close to CBGB's, and later in his life, surprisingly, in Lawrence, Kansas, where the shrine to old uh, Bill Lee is there, and, you know, people from Michael Stipe to Kurt Cobain come to pay homage to Burroughs. It's pretty wild, and and that's a pretty good summation. You know, he was a globetrotter after the incident in Mexico uh, and the shooting of Joan Vollmer. He spent a lot of time outside of the United States, and traveled the world, uh, Tangier, you know, where he composed a lot of Naked Lunch, Paris, where, you know, he actually did bump into musicians in Paris, too. David Allen of the Soft Machine backed Burroughs up at readings in Paris. But London was definitely a big deal. This was at the sort of start of London's swinging summer. Improbably, he found himself, uh, you know, in the midst of all of these uber-hip rockers like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. And yes, New York for sure. Um, He would come back to visit because Allen Ginsberg was living there at the time. And that was where Burroughs um, had his sit down with Bob Dylan just before he committed the heresy at the Newport Folk Festival by going electric. So, you know, you see Burroughs pop up at these interesting uh, junctures in these other artists' lives. Then later in New York, at the epicenter, Ground Zero, the original point of contagion for the punk movement, 
in the Bowery. The bunker, which was a windowless YMCA that he lived in, was <laughs> yep, happier yep. than a clam. All the CD <laughs> punk rockers would come visit him. Members of Blondie were fond of Burroughs. And many others, of course. Bowie visited him again at the bunker many years later. And then finally in Kansas at the beginning of the 1980s, uh, New York was getting very expensive even then, and he also had relapsed into a habit, and it seemed that his health and sanity uh, would benefit from you know, more chill environs. And so he ended up in Lawrence, and the musicians kept coming to him. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Michael Stipe. Kurt Cobain, but Sonic Youth visited him, and Al Jorgensen from Ministry. He had a pretty busy social schedule, even in Kansas. And of course, he continued to write and produce uh, other works. He started painting and stuff like that. Well, well, he put a can of paint in front of a canvas, and then he shot it with a shotgun. (laughs) (laughs) Don't romanticize, Casey! Uh, he also painted a little bit, too. You know, I heard that he, he didn't want to call himself a painter out of respect, well, maybe because of the methods you described, but also out of respect to his friend Brian Geisen, who sure. uh, didn't have the, the notoriety or acclaim that William enjoyed. The uh, relationship he had with these artists, this whole idea of a transactional relationship, it yeah. seemed like Burroughs cozied up to these artists whose music he either barely knew or didn't know at all or didn't like. Yeah, uh, but nonetheless found them interesting enough to, to spend a lot of time with. In some cases, I think he understood the potency of the music. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was one of Patti Smith's earliest champions and was at her poetry debuts at St. Mark's Church when it was just her and Lenny. I know the true story of sweet Jesse James. The picture you have of him is badly framed. He lived as an old man in exchange for his name. He lived as high in exchange for his fame. And, you know, I think that in some cases he was able to understand the shamanic power of rock and roll and certainly understood its countercultural significance. But you're right. He didn't go home and put on a Rolling Stones record. Um, His literary assistant and the executor of his estate, James Grauerholz, actually sent me a mixtape of music that Burroughs did listen to. A lot of old Gilded Age uh, stuff and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, turn of the century stuff and, Mm. and some old jazz. But he listened to the Master Musicians of Djoka, a Moroccan tribal-affiliated group mm-hmm. that he called a, the world's oldest rock and roll band. He wasn't a rock and roll fan, that's for sure. And yet, like you mentioned, many of the musicians in this book did have personal relationships of uh, one kind or another with William S. Burroughs, the man. So you were already a fan, but was there anything in your research for this book that surprised you? Well, you know, 
I'm a fan, but at the same time, you know, I find a lot of this stuff fairly grotesque, if not outright appalling. There's an attraction aversion aspect to it. And, you know, the amazing thing about William S. Burroughs is that I can still be surprised that even after all this time, like I'm not a 19 year old kid anymore. I'm a middle aged person. I, uh, you know, reread a lot of Burroughs and I found a lot of it still pretty intense, uh, scalding and in some cases grotesque. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the potency, I could still argue for that. And uh, hopefully some of that comes across. I mean, in terms of his work, I think you leave it up to the reader to make their own determinations about, you know, its impact and whether it's successful or not, you know, sounds like Jim might be a little bit more skeptical about the cut-ups and that's fine. Some of the cut-up works are kind of hard to get through, right? It's not something that you want to uh, sit down in front of a nice It's not light fire. reading, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I think actually my problem comes down to, if I had to characterize Burroughs versus Kerouac, you know, Burroughs is a nihilist. You know, and Kerouac, despite dying drunk watching TV with his mom, was essentially life affirming. You know, be here now, live in the moment versus Burroughs' overwhelming notion that that we are all doomed by these forces that are beyond our control. So we might as well take heroin and get a. I don't think he was saying we were doomed, though. I think he was saying this is a way to get around that, you know? That's right. I suppose so, yeah. I see it as almost heroic in some ways, the extent to which he would go to subvert the apparatus of control. At first blush, that doesn't necessarily seem life-affirming, but at the same time, he was very interested in uh, what humanity needed to do in order to preserve itself. He was worried about self-initiated human extinction. He was an early environmentalist. You know, we read about guys like Elon Musk building a space ark, you know, and uh, Burroughs was talking about this in the 50s and 60s. It's pretty amazing how prescient he is or was. And in that way, I put him more alongside, like, artists uh, and writers like William Blake than maybe even his own Beat Generation peers. Mm. Uh, and I think he, he kind of occupies his own realm, even though he came out of the same kind of social clique that produced the other uh, writers that we've talked about, Ginsburg and Kerouac foremost among them. Mm-hmm. Sorry to be a devil's advocate there. Uh, oh, I love uh, Casey, it. But I think it's very much in the spirit of Burroughs <laughs> to challenge yeah. Yeah. anybody who would be hoisted up as an idol. That's right. Was there any relationship that surprised you? that you sort of dug into and found out about between Burroughs and another sort of cultural rock icon? Well, you know, Grant Hart from uh, Husker Du and, you know, his solo work was was very interesting and moving. Are you one of those angels who attempted to rebel? You waged a war in heaven, were defeated and you fell. Are you one of those angels who went all the way to hell? You know, I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool, post-punk or hardcore person, so that was kind of new and interesting for me to consider. But really, the Patti Smith relationship was surprisingly touching, even moving. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. To hear her personal accounts and the tenderness that he displayed to her at at key times in her own creative development, Mm -hmm. that was very special. Wild cord on my sleeve Thick Heart of stone My sins my own They belong to me 
Some of the stuff is just really funny, like the little tete-a-tete between Burroughs and Mick Jagger over the <laughs> over the years. You yeah. know, it's sort of like they were uh, mild antagonists, but also occasionally um, seemingly mutually dependent. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. I love the just human glimpses of Burroughs. Yeah. Uh, you know, when Allen Ginsberg would travel from New York to visit Burroughs in Kansas, and uh, they're taking their old man canes and trying to whip <laughs> the, the raccoon out of Bill's uh, yeah. kitchen. I love that. Uh, it's just silly. It's sweet, silly old men from another time and yep. place uh, yep, coming they back together. Yep. They were. We have been talking to Casey Ray. We've known him for a long time as a writer. He is now the author of this book, William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, with a day job at Sirius XM. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions, Casey. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. People say beware. Before we move on from uh, William S. Burroughs, uh, an author we both uh, greatly admire, much as many musicians did, is to talk about the influence that he had on certain creative people over the decades uh, in the music world. Uh, you know, the first name that springs to mind, and, he, and he's on the cover of Casey's book, sharing the cover with William Burroughs, David Bowie. There was a famous conversation uh, that Rolling Stone engineered between these two as Bowie was ascendant, and Burroughs was uh, in some ways bemused by the whole notion that he was going to be talking to Bowie, an artist he was fond of in a way, but was certainly not a huge fan of, but recognized the possibilities of what a conversation with David Bowie could do for his own literary career at Mm -hmm. that point. And it turned out to be a fascinating exchange. Bowie was clearly up to the intellectual exchange as much as the marketing aspects of it. And and Burroughs uh, was, was happy to indulge. Bowie was, in a word, a huge, huge fan of uh, multiple approaches that uh, Burroughs took to his art. One, the sort of futuristic aspects of it, the science fiction aspect of it, the fascination with aliens. You know, Burroughs would talk, when he, when he would go speak, he would talk a lot about, I'm looking forward to the world I'm going to be in when the aliens come and take me <laughs> yeah. away. You know? yeah. He yeah. wanted to be transported somewhere else. Being a human being is tough, you know. He was, uh, in a sense, an inspiration for Ziggy Stardust and, and the Spiders from Mars, uh, Bowie's breakthrough album in the 70s. And much of that work was based on not only Burroughs' ideas about alien life forms, but also Burroughs' great book, The Wild Boys, A Book of the Dead, which came out just a few years earlier. And this was essentially about a gay youth movement, marauders wielding 18-inch Bowie knives. Funny how he would strike upon that, resulting in the collapse of Western civilization. Much of Ziggy Stardust was this concept album about the end of the world. We're gonna, the world's going to end in five years. What will follow that? And then, of course, as we've discussed, uh, you know, employing the cut-up technique that uh, Burroughs made famous, uh, Bowie exploited it throughout his entire career. Very early on was on this. Uh, the first couple of lines of the song Moon Age Daydream from Ziggy Stardust, I'm an alligator, I'm a mama papa coming for you. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> yeah, but it know. opens up a whole new reality in this song. Here's Moon Age Daydream from David Bowie on Sound Opinions. I'm an alligator I'm a mama papa coming for you I'm a space invader I'll be a rock and roll 
Moon Age Daydream from David Bowie, an acolyte, to say the least, of William S. Burroughs. Jim, you've got an example for us as well, right? I do, Greg. I made this point when we were talking to Casey that I think Burroughs was a great musician. His voice, that voice, the priest, they called him. That's the track I'm going to play. I think Burroughs shines in this recording of a short piece he had written. It is particularly appropriate given the holiday season. Burroughs, in typical Burroughs fashion, rewrote O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi to portray a heroin addict who is desperate to score on Christmas Eve. He makes it back to his boarding house with a fix, and next door he hears a young Mexican boy in the throes of horrible drug addiction, and he gives him his heroin, and then he dies. You know, it's glorifying heroin, more of that nonsense, okay, but it is a funny, cynical, weird story. There's a great animated short that you can find streaming online uh, called The Junkie's Christmas, which does a great job. Burroughs did a different recording for that. But for this recording, he recorded at home in Lawrence, Kansas with his longtime manager and a guy named Kurt Cobain went into the recording studio out in Seattle and did a musical backing track. The Priest, they called him, a collaboration between Cobain and Burroughs, came out in 1993 as a limited edition 10-inch picture disc, only one-sided, on Tim Care Records, right? You know, it is not Cobain at his best. He's basically doing blasts of Melvin's-like noise, hmm. along with a little bit of Silent Night and uh, To Anacreon in Heaven. Just these classic riffs thrown in. Burroughs outshines Cobain, which is hard to do, because it's that voice, that hmm. voice, Greg, I tell you. The priest, they called him. Here it is, uh, Kurt Cobain and William S. Burroughs on Sound Opinions. Quite tuberculosis, folks. Christmas Eve, an old junkie selling Christmas seals on North Park Street. The priest, they called him. Quite tuberculosis, folks. People hurried by gray shadows on a distant wall. It was getting late and no money to score. He turned into a side street and the lake wind hit him like a knife. Cab stopped just ahead under a streetlight. Boy got out with a suitcase. Thin kid in prep school clothes, familiar face, the priest told himself. Watching from the doorway, 
The Priest, they called him. William S. Burroughs and Kurt Cobain. That came out in 1993, Greg. It is certainly a unique memento of that era. Has the writing of William S. Burroughs had an impact on you and how you hear music? Let us know. Call the hotline, 888-859-1800, and leave a message with your story. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we look forward to this all year. We are going to count down our favorite albums of 2019. I can't wait, Greg. Of course, we also want to hear from you. Call our hotline at 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your best albums of 2019 and why. And you might wind up featured on the show. The conversation's always vibrant as well on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter. For more sound opinions, listen to the podcast wherever you get such things. As always, the show was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. When it gets hard, I won't roll those leaves. Life can be so. Won't you call me? Call me. No time to hesitate. We must communicate. Yeah. Call me. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline. 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, my name is Tammy. I'm calling from Chicago. I love listening to Sound Opinions. And uh, I wanted to call about your Songs That Make You Cry show, which was last week. I just wanted to mention Bette Midler's The Rose. That song makes me cry <laughs> because... I am 57 years old, and I have been married for the first time for two and a half years. And the hope um, and the lyrics of that song just makes me cry. Some say love, it is a Hey, what's up? It's Mike from New York City. Just want to add to your Thanksgiving leftovers list. Uh, I think uh, something that was really great this year was the Ken Burns country music documentary. Uh, an excellent film and uh, almost uh, 16 hours on the history of country music. And as somebody who's not a big country music fan, I learned a lot. And I'm going back now, and I'm listening to Bill Monroe. Uh, I'm listening to Jimmy Rogers, and I'm listening to Hank Williams. Did you ever see a robin weep when leaves began to die? Like me, he's lost the will to live. I'm so lonesome. I could cry. The 
education I got from this documentary was was really fantastic, and uh, I'm just I'm going to become a bigger country music fan now. Uh, so uh, that's something that was really great this year. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Hi, my name is Ella. I'm from Des Plaines, Illinois, and I'm calling in about the latest episode in your review of FKA Twig's release. You talk about how she uses Mary Magdalene as a symbol to represent the mischaracterization of women. And while I agree with that to an extent, I also think the concept of emotional labor is super important to the meaning of this album, especially on a track like Home With You. Mary Magdalene in this album represents how FKA Twigs and so many women like her can and are constantly giving so much of their time and energy to someone and they receive nothing in return. And I couldn't let you guys leave that part out. Thank you for the great and emotionally vulnerable show, you guys. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing your end of the year and your end of the decade list. Hello, this is Brian O'Connor. I'm from Evanston, Illinois, and I think the best album of 2019, easily the most fun, was Ulysses' album On Safari. Uh, they released a few albums before, uh, but this is really the year where it all came together. Their sense of humor and the hooks, really they, they sound like the second coming of 10CC. Strongly recommend you give it a shot and take a listen. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.